0: All right, Matthew chapter twenty-five, and I'm going to begin reading in verse thirty-one. So, if you'd like to stand, uh, go ahead and do that at this time. Matthew twenty-five, and I'm going to begin reading in verse thirty-one. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when? When do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer saying, Lord, when when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous to eternal life father help us help us God to be ready father we believe that you are sending your son Jesus back to the earth we believe that he will come at an unexpected time father we believe what your word says that when he comes there will be a separation and father I pray that every heart here this morning would take seriously the opportunity to be ready Father, please speak to us. Please move among us in activity by the power of your spirit. Father, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. You know, since the beginning of time, uh, people just by nature divide themselves, don't they? Like we we just kind of by nature get in groups. We... Uh, we identify ourselves with certain groups of people. That That's always been true. People have always identified themselves as slaves or free or as Egyptians or Romans or Americans or Romanians or Thai or Japanese. People have always identified themselves even among their country as progressives or liberals or conservatives or Jew or Gentile or Republican or Democrat or millennial or Generation X or Baby Boomer or OU or OSU, right? I mean, like, we just do that, don't we? Like, we just kind of get in tribes. We get in, we divide ourselves, okay? And I'm really convinced by what Paul says in Galatians, anyway, that none of that will ever matter, okay? Uh, he talks about there's no, in Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free. You know, he talks about how all those divisions will be put away, but there's one division that will eternally matter. There's one separation that, that will eternally matter. And Jesus is describing this for you. Now, please note that this is not a parable. We've been in parables, haven't we? Like for the last several weeks, we've been looking at the parable of the talents or the parable of the wise servant and the foolish servant. I mean, he's given us several parables. We look briefly at the parable of the, of the ten uh, virgins or the five wise and five foolish bridesmaids, you could call them. So, so he's been teaching in parables, but all of a sudden he stops and he says, okay, this is what's going to happen happen, all right? So he's like he's like shooting us into the future, and he's opening up the page of eternity for us and saying, you're going to be here, okay? You're going to be in this group. Christ is going to come, and this is going to happen, all right? So he's, he's given us this, this glimpse of the future, this snapshot of a place and a time that all of us will be. And in that place and in that time, There will be a separation, okay? And this separation will be an eternal one. We understand separation. We understand it in this life. Uh, Many of you have people that you've been separated from. Uh, You have family or friends or people that you love that are, are somewhere else because of their job or school or war or mission. I've got a daughter that lives literally on the other side of the earth, about as far away from us as she could get. I'm not sure what that means, but that's what she did, you know? Uh, she's she's on the other side of the earth. And so we understand that separation, but we also understand that in this life, I mean, we have hope to see her. We, you know, we plan trips to see her. We plan for her to come back. And, and and then oh, obviously in eternity we plan uh, to see her forever and ever. But Jesus is talking about a separation here. He's talking about a place that's gonna a time that's gonna happen. We're gonna be at where we will be separated from those that maybe we love or those that we know, and we will never see them again. This is this is the type of separation where those on the right will never ever interact with those on the left again. Those on the left will never experience or see those on the right again. I mean, this is the one separation, the final separation. That will never again be reversed, and Jesus has been talking about this. Like this is not a new thing that He's introducing today. Um, if you remember in in, in chapter twenty four, right after He talked about His coming, He said it's going to be like the days of Noah. And he said there are going to be two men in the field. You kind of assume they know each other, right? You assume maybe they're father and son or brothers or best friends or coworkers. And it says one will be taken and one will be left. It says there will be two women grinding at the mill. You assume they're mother, daughter, sisters, friends, whatever. It says one will be taken and one will be left. He's describing this separation. He goes on to describe a foolish servant and a wise servant. And when he gets to the foolish servant, he says he'll be cast out into that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the the parable of the virgins or the bridesmaids, there's five of them who are ready. And so when the groom knocks on the door, they go into the wedding. The other five go to the market to try to fill their lamps because they're not prepared. They're not ready. They were not ready for that day, for that knock. And then they get to the wedding and it says the door was shut. Then they were left out. They missed it. They missed the wedding. There was a separation. And in, in the in the parable of the talents, we read about two servants who invested, who took seriously the master's entrusting to them, and they went out and invested what the master had, and they they brought a return. And then the one servant who buried his talent, remember this from last week? It says he'll be cast into the outer darkness. In that place, he'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then today we have this this clear picture of what Jesus is talking about, where he actually separates all humanity into the sheep and the goats, the believers and the non-believers. Now, what what is the basis of that separation? Okay? Now I'm just going to give you a New Testament view of that. Okay. So if you read your whole New Testament, here's what you're going to find. The basis of that separation is is whether or not you were joined by faith to Jesus Christ. That's the basis of that separation, okay? So, so the basis of the separation is, have you repented of your sins? Have you put your faith in Christ? Have you trusted that he's the best thing, that you can trust him, that he's your treasure, that he's, he's life, that you're pursuing him, you're, you're, you're denying yourself and taking up your cross, and you're following him? If so, you are joined forever to Jesus Christ, your Savior and King, and you'll be on the right. However, I want you to be really clear here in your mind to understand that in God's courtroom, in God's throne, in this day, He demands there be evidence, okay? He demands that there be evidence, all right? In other words, we kind of talked about this last week. There's not going to be anybody on the day of judgment who says, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a believer. I, I'm, I'm, it, I'm, it, you know, I, I'm in. I'm in. You know, I'm in. And God lays out their life and begins to look at it, and the angels are looking, and, and the saints are overlooking, and everybody's looking at this life, and there's no fruit, and there's no there's no evidence of conversion. There's no evidence of a transformed life. There's no evidence of Jesus Christ in them. And there will not be one who God will say, well, there's no evidence, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to take you at your word, you know, you say so, so that's okay. No, there's evidence to the contrary that that will not happen. And and so when God's thrown at at this judgment day, he will demand that there will be evidence that will flow from a life of faith and repentance. In other words, if you are joined to Jesus, then a particular kind of life is gonna flow from that and God's gonna be able to say on that day, oh, look, look, yes, you come, blessed in my father, inherit the kingdom because look, I see the evidence that you were joined to my son, that you were transformed by the grace of God of Jesus Christ. Now don't get this out of order, okay? Don't get it out of order. So we're saying that, that the, the, the actions of your life are going to be the real evidence that God uses to say, you're one of mine, okay? But don't get this out of order, okay? Don't, don't switch that around. Don't, don't think in your mind, okay? What he's saying today is the way to get saved is, I need to go find a hungry person. That shouldn't be very hard, should it? Like we, we, we all know hungry people. Actually, we don't know any hungry people probably, but we all think we're hungry, right? I'm going to go find a thirsty person. I'm going to go give them, a, give them a hamburger, give them a Diet Coke. Uh, I'm going to go find a stranger. You know, I'm going to go find somebody I don't know or somebody that you know, doesn't, doesn't know anybody in Woodward, somebody that's traveling, some, a foreigner who happens to be here, and I'm going to welcome them in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go find a naked person. That might be a little harder, right? you got to be careful about that. I'm going to go find a naked person. I'm going to give them, you know, check, 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 check. Oh, I did it, I'm a Christian, right? Hear me out, that is not the way into the kingdom. You'll never get into heaven that way. You will not get into heaven by saying, okay, I need to go find a hungry person, thirsty person, naked person, foreigner, uh, someone sick and someone in prison, check, 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 and now I'm, I'm, I'm in. No, the Bible says you cannot get to heaven by your deeds. Do you notice, there's, there's a cool little detail of this parable, okay? Do you notice that when he says, because I was hungry and you fed me, I was thirsty, what do the saints say? When? When did we do that? You know know why they say when? Because it wasn't their list. You see, if it had been what they were trusting in for their salvation, if it it had been, okay, I need to do these six things in order to be saved, well, man, they'd have had it, right? Jesus said, hey, come, bless my Father, because you were hungry. You're like, yeah, I remember that hunger guy. He was by the road, Interstate 70. I was traveling to Colorado, and I fed him. Woo, glad I did that. No, they're like, when did this happen? You know why? You know why they say when? Because it was their life. They had been so transformed by the grace of God that this, this is the way they lived. This was everyday life for them. One of the big questions about this passage is, who are these people that are being fed and clothed and visited and welcomed and assisted and prayed for? Who are these folks? Okay, now, now let, me, let me tell you what I've heard, okay? So I've, I've heard this taught and preached in a way that says this is anybody who's in need. Okay? Now let me tell you what's absolutely true about that. Jesus taught with complete certainty that if you're a believer, you're going to love your neighbor, right? Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the guy that's in the ditch. You know you don't check his, his card to see, okay, are you the right person here that I'm supposed to help? No, nope, you're not it. You know, see it. No, Jesus taught by the Good Samaritan that that those who love their neighbor are going to help the people in need, right? Absolutely believe that. It's taught in the in the in the New Testament. Okay. So believers are people that are gonna they're gonna love everyone. We're gonna talk about that in a second. I don't actually think that's who he's talking about here. Okay. Notice notice in verse 40 he says the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my what does he say? My brothers, my brothers. I've heard this. I've heard this preached that this is the Jews. I I don't think so. Um, I've heard this preached that this is just the disciples, like the twelve. I think it's much bigger than that. He's talking about judgment day. He's fast forwarding millennia. Okay, let me tell you. I think it is. I think it's Christians. Okay, I think it's Christians, believers in general. Now, why would I think that? Let me give you some evidence for that. In Matthew chapter twelve, let's listen to Jesus' own words here. In Matthew chapter twelve, verse forty-nine, here's what it says. Uh, and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. Okay, so he points to his disciples. He says, here's my mother and brothers. And then he clarifies that. He explains it in the next verse, verse 50. He says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. You see that? He's telling us who his brothers are here, right? He says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that's my brother, that's my mother, that's my sister, that's my family, okay? So Jesus kind of gives us a definition there that, that his mother, brother, and sister, his family are those who do the will of his Father in heaven. Now, there are other places in the Bible as well that we could look to, actually just even in the Gospel of Matthew, that talk about how, how if you do something to someone, for someone, because they're a believer, that that has significance, okay? So, for instance, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, it says, whoever gives a cup, one of these little ones, a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. Who's the little one there? A disciple, right? Because he's a disciple. Because he's a disciple, he says, you will by no means lose your reward. And so there's an example of where someone is is doing an act to someone, they're they're meeting a need because they're a believer, and Jesus says, man, you're not going to lose your reward. Let me turn to Acts 9. This is one of the most compelling passages, I think, in the scripture that talk about that what you do for other believers is also what you do for Jesus, or what you don't do for other believers is what you don't do for Jesus. This is the conversion of the apostle Paul, okay? So his name's still Saul in in Acts 9 because he hadn't been converted yet, and he's on his way to the Damascus, you know what he's going to do? He's going to kill him some Christians, right? He's going to throw some Christians in jail. He's going to have some beat. He is angry, he is furious, and he hates Christians. And he's on his way to Damascus, and that's what he's been doing, okay? He actually was one of the ones who held the garments of those who stoned uh, Stephen, the deacon Stephen, okay? So that's the kind of guy this is, all right? He's on his way to Damascus, and Jesus Intervenes, okay? He appears to him in a bright light, and here's what Jesus says to him, okay? In verse 4, it says, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, right? Me. Now, Jesus has already died, risen, and ascended into heaven. Where's Jesus at right now? Man, he's in the heavens. He's at the right hand of God, all right? He's in glory. Saul actually can't touch Jesus, okay? But Saul is doing what he is persecuting Jesus people right he's persecuting Jesus church he's persecuting other believers and so when Jesus addresses him he says, "Why are you persecuting me Saul when whenever you whenever you whip a Christian you're whipping me whenever you kill a Christian you're you're, you're murdering me whenever you mistreat or abuse or what you don't do for a believer, you don't do for me, okay? So I believe there's strong evidence in this passage to say who is Jesus talking about when he says, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, or as you didn't do it to one of the least of these my brothers, he's talking about believers, okay? Now, does that mean, again, that we don't love or minister to people who are not believers? Absolutely not, uh, what about the Sermon on the Mount? Remember that? Jesus said even to your enemy. What did he say to do to your enemy? All right, let's not let's not talk about believers. Let's not talk about uh, people who are just indifferent to the gospel. Let's talk about people who are your enemies. He said love them. He said pray for those who persecute you. He said if they demand you go one mile, how many do you go? You go two. If they, if they take your cloak, give them your tunic as well, right? So there's abundance of evidence in the Scriptures that we are to love anybody who's in need. But what we see here is... Is it weird to love believers for a different reason? We're to love believers. You know why? Because Christ is in them, okay? We're to love believers because they, they're indwelt with the Spirit of God. They're in the body of Christ. They share a mission with us. We love unbelievers because we want them to see the gospel. Why, why, why do we meet the needs of those who don't believe? Because we want them to see the gospel. Matthew 5, 16 says, um, I forgot. Uh, it's like do your good deeds. Uh, if I can't get the first of it. In the same way, there you go, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So we want them to see our good deeds. We want them to meet their needs so we can see their good deeds and, glora, and they'll glorify God. We want them to know God. We want them to glorify God. There's a great verse in Galatians 6 that kind of summarizes this. It says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Did you hear that? Who are we to do good to? everyone, especially, okay, those of the household of faith, all right? Now, you know what scares me about this, what I see here in Matthew chapter 25? What scares me about what I see in Matthew 25 is there's a growing movement in America, and and I hope it's reversing, but it's been strong for the last 10 years, that says this, I want Jesus, I'll take, I don't want the church, okay? I'll take Jesus, but no thanks to the bride, I'll take Jesus, but no thanks to gathering with his people. No thanks to being on mission with his people. No thanks to fellowshipping with his people. I'll take the church, but I don't want his people. Okay, now, first of all, that just doesn't work, okay? It just doesn't work, guys. That's not the way things work. You can't come up to me and say, man, Jason, I really want to hang out with you. I want to be your friend. Let's be friends. But I don't like your wife, and I don't like your kids. And so whenever we hang out, would you make sure they're not around, okay? That just it doesn't work. And in the same way, you can't say to Jesus, Jesus, I want to be with you. I I, I, I want you. I want, I want to be your guy. But I... I don't, I don't like your people. I don't like your wife. I don't like your bride. The church is the bride of Christ. It just doesn't work. But not only that, I can't figure out how in the world does it mesh with this passage, okay? With this passage where Jesus says, hey, the defining, there are lots of them, but the defining characteristic of a born-again believer is how you treated the people of God. Like, whether you were drawn to gather, whether you were drawn to meet needs, whether you are drawn to friendship with the people of God, I don't know how to mesh people who say, I want Jesus, but I don't want the church. I'm indifferent to the body of Christ. One of the big questions in our life this morning ought to be, how do I relate with the people of God? Not just here, but around the world. Are, are you drawn to the people of God? Like, are, are you... I'll just be honest you couldn't keep me away um I you just really couldn't I mean you guys could tell me don't come back and I'd respect you but I'd just find other people of God you know I, I mean I, I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna find people to be with who are God's people like like how do you relate with the people of God let, let me let me tell you how this deal works okay so a couple weeks ago, remember this? We were at a very important passage in Matthew 22. So just like it's one page back in my Bible. But in Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And here's what he said. He said, the greatest commandment is this. You should love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and, uh, heart, soul, and mind. Actually, it says strength in Deuteronomy, but it's heart, soul, and mind here in Matthew. And then what's he say? And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, remember we talked about those two go together, Okay. No, nobody can say hey I got one I'm just working on the other no you can't okay the Bible is really clear that if you love God you're gonna love your your, your brother and it, and if you love your brother you, you that means you loved God okay uh, I, I can prove this to you isn't that great when I can do that like I'm just not talking my opinion I can absolutely prove this to you it's in first John okay so everybody turn there in your Bibles um, we're gonna hang out here for just a little bit but I want I want you to see this okay I want you to see the connection between the love of God and And the love of brother. I want you to see why Jesus is able to say, On that last day, I'm going to divide the sheep and the goats. And here's the here's the defining characteristic. Here's the defining evidence of the sheep is that you're going to be able to look at their life and you're going to be able to see how they love the people of God. All right. So 1 John chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. Okay, you ready? We know that we have passed. Okay, this is like an assurance passage. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because why, guys? We love the brothers. See that? We know that we pass out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Okay? Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, put your finger right there, okay, because we're going to come back to that passage. But did you see what he just said? He said, we know. Like, like I want to know. I want to know, guys, that I'm going to be on the right. I'll tell you the kind of person I am. I'm not the kind of person that's like, I'm not sure if I'm gonna be on the right or the left. I'm not sure if I'm gonna be a sheep or goat. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna gamble it. You know what? I'm not gonna gamble with my eternity. And so so John says, one of the ways that I know I'm a born-again believer is do I love my brother? Like, am I drawn to the people of God in practical ways? Okay. Now I want to give you some more evidence, okay? First John 4. This this really tells us how it works, okay? This is why I like this one. First John chapter 4, verse 7. Okay, you ready? Next, next chapter, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? Why should we do that, John? For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If you love your brother, that means you've been born of God and know God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, But that, get it right there? He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 11, here's a great summary. Are you ready? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you see the arrows there? If God loved us, okay, if it comes down from heaven, God has loved us, okay, then what are we going to do? We're going to love one another. Verse 12, no one who has ever seen God. Uh, No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us, okay? So here's here's the reality, okay? We don't always have warm fuzzies for one another. You guys know what warm fuzzies are? That's whenever you watch videos of little puppies and kittens and, you know, babies, and you get that, oh, I just want to, come here, come here, right? Like, that's what, that's what a warm fuzzy is, okay? But here's the reality, man. I, I just, I don't always have warm fuzzies For Chase, okay? I I don't always have that for Chase, you know, or for Fred. It just doesn't always happen. I like the guys. Fred's super faithful about giving me mints, but I I just don't always have warm fuzzies for these guys. And you know what? You probably don't always have warm fuzzies for us, but here's the deal. That's not what it's about okay? It's not, It's not, well, if you become a Christian, all of a sudden, all the other Christians seem really delightful to you, you know? Like, like, every time you're around them, you're just like, these are the best people ever, you know? They've got no quirks, and they've got no idiosyncrasies, and they got nothing to bother me, you know? No, that's not what happens, okay? That's not what happens. What did First John 4.10 tell us? Where do we get this love? God. God has loved us, all right, did you get that? That's a really important point. God has loved you. God has set his favor on you. Cool? God has set his favor on you. God has dumped his riches on you. God has said, I am for you. God has said, I am, you are mine and I am yours. I'm gonna adopt you. I'm gonna redeem you. I'm gonna forgive you. I'm gonna fill you with my spirit. That's what God has done. God has loved me. And you know what? I got warm fuzzies over that. Like I really do. When I think about the love of God for me, man, that every day of the week moves my heart, okay? So God has loved me. Now, what do I do? How do I respond to that? I love God. How do I love God? I love in others, particularly his people. Now, in general, yes, everyone, but particularly those who are his, those who are indwelled with the spirit, those who are chosen, those who are his people, okay? So here's how it go. We are loved by God And so we love God by loving others. Now, just to recap, we are not saved by our own works. But when you are saved, man, it leaves a trail. It leaves a trail. You know, evidence. And and that evidence, one of the primary evidences there is that you love other people. A lot of you were in Brian Billings Sunday School class, and uh, he taught through Pilgrim's Progress this last year. Uh, We teach it every other year uh, in our youth and our student ministry. I love that book. I mean, I love John Bunyan for writing it, but I'm telling you what, I'm glad he wrote it in the 1600s because if he'd have wrote it today, it would not be very popular, okay? But in the 1600s, it was a it was a huge hit and it's still, actually, it's one of the most read books of all time. But you know, you know why it wouldn't be popular? Because in Bunyan's journey to the celestial city, if you've read the book, do you know what happens every time he meets somebody? There's, there's a questioning. Like, like he says, I'm on my way to the celestial city, And you know what the people do? They sit him down like, all right, tell me, where'd you come from? How'd you get into this road? Tell me about your journey. Where have you been? You know? And whenever he meets somebody, he's like, hey, okay, you're on your way there? All right, tell me about that. And he questions them, okay? You know why that would not be a big hit today? You know why that would not be a big hit? Because today we have this phobia about anybody examining our lives, right? Like, anybody questioning us, like, we we just going to tell you what we are, but you don't dare ask me anything about my life, right? Now, I don't think Bunyan was a bad person. I don't think he was a judger. I don't think he was judgy. You know what I think about Bunyan? I think he didn't want good people to go to hell. I, I, I think that was it. I, th- I think he just didn't want people to go to hell. He didn't want people to think they were going to heaven when they really weren't. You see, loving people, I believe, is about caring about people and their suffering. They're suffering in poverty, we should care about them. They're suffering in loneliness, we should care about them. Sickness, yep. Injustice, yep. Sin, see, here's where, where our culture kind of fights back a little bit. Yes, we should care about that. You see, sin leads to the greatest suffering because sin leads to hell. All right, again, the evidence of salvation Isn't it interesting? It's not a couple big things. You know what's fascinating? A bunch of things are fascinating about this passage to me. There's a lot of different directions I could have gone. But one of the things is whenever I I talk to people about uh, about their salvation, a lot of times people will say, I know I'm going to heaven. Why do you know that? Well, because I haven't done, (laughs) and they'll give me a list, right? Like I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed, you know, like I haven't done these really bad things. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting because when Jesus describes the last judgment, it's not about what you haven't done. It's about the evidence of Christ in your life and love for, uh, love for the people of God. Folks, these kind of relationships that Jesus describes, they're supernatural. You know how I know they're supernatural? Because here's the deal. You're not drawn. I'm not drawn to needy people. Like people that are hungry and thirsty. Honestly, we don't have very many of those in America. Did you know that? We don't have very many hungry people. Um, real hunger, like starving hunger. But what Jesus is describing is people that have the worst kind of need. Like they've they've got no resources at all to the point that they've got no food. And Jesus says, man, when a believer sees those people, he engages, especially if they're the people of God. That's why when we hear about hungry people in India on the other side of the world, that's why we write checks, guys. Why? Because they're God's people. Those are God's children. By nature, you're not drawn to strangers, are you? He says, I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. What's a stranger? What's a foreigner? What's a foreigner? What's somebody that is not like you, right? Somebody that doesn't dress like you, eat like you, talk like you, look like you, think like you. That's a stranger, right? And so Jesus says, man, if we're the church, then we welcome strangers in. We've got an especially difficult case with this one, guys. You know Why? It's because of our American culture, right? In our American culture, in order to, for us to welcome you in, we've got to see your background check, right? Like, you got to bring it. Like, I tried to get in somebody's house the other day, and they asked me for my background check, and I didn't have it. And besides, they said that their house had not been certified with uh, HGTV and home and gardens clean. And so, you know, that would, that would, I would need at least two months uh, uh, ahead of time for them to get their house, you know. It, it, isn't it weird? Like, that's American culture. It's it's freaky. You go anywhere else in the world, like, like literally in January, I'm standing on a corner in a little village in a part of the world that nobody is like me. Like, we're the weirdest people that they've ever seen. Guess what happens? The same thing happened in every village. Sooner or later, somebody came up to us. Kind of broken English. Yeah, come on, come, 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 come in, come in. You know, here we go. Well, they open their little door, little bitty house, living room, no bigger than this. You know, there's like seven of us. We take up all the furniture in the living room. Like, there's no chairs. And then he says some to his wife or his daughter or his grandma. And in any cases, they go out, light a fire. Pretty soon, here comes some tortillas. Here comes some honey. Here's some dates. Here, pretty soon, here comes a little kid with a tray of tea. Now, dad's just sitting there like this. There's no place for him to sit, you know. We're taking up all the chairs, you know. And I'm thinking, dude, this guy don't care, you know. Like, he just invited us in. Jesus said, we're to be that person. It really ticks me off when Muslims have better hospitality than Christians. Like that makes me think, take that HGTV and throw it out. Welcome them in. Welcome them. Isn't it great that believers don't have to have anything in common? Isn't that awesome? Have you ever found yourself like with somebody that you had nothing in common with except Jesus? And, and you were so drawn to them. Solomon and I. We have nothing in common. He cannot fathom why I would take my family out in a tent. Like that is so weird to him. He cannot fathom why we would go to a mountain and hike it. Like, like I, I, threat, I tease him every time. I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, we're gonna be going by a mountain." He's like, "No, Pastor, I will not get out of the car. I will not go." You know, he's like, he's just like, it's the dumbest thing in the world to him. Why, why, why would anybody go camping? You know, why would you go out and the? I mean, I, they're trying to get away from the wilderness. You know, he loves India. He could live in America. When he was working for Macy's, they they offered to transfer him here. He wants to live in India. When, man, when you make a list of the countries I want to live, oh, there's a lot of them. I'd live in France. I'd live in Spain. I'd live in England. I'd live in Thailand. I'd live in Japan. I'd, I'd live in Taiwan. I'd live with Addy. I'd live anywhere. In the world. Man, India is down at the bottom. Like, I do not want to be there. When they bring out the white stuff, he gets giddy, you know, scooping it up. I, I start to have diarrhea just just by seeing the stuff. Like, we have nothing in common. Nothing, nothing except Jesus. There's not enough time in the week for us to talk. Like we talk multiple times in the week and there's never enough time. We have so much to talk about. What do we have in common? Jesus. He can live with me anytime. He has stayed with me. I can stay with him. Any- what do we got? Jesus. See, that, that's the picture here. By nature, we're not drawn to sick people. Jesus says you will if they're believers. By nature, we're not drawn to people in prison. But oh, if they're believers, we'll go. I I get to go to the prison a couple times this next month. Dave's gonna be gone. (laughs) It it literally, I've told you this before, this is the best place to preach in northwest Oklahoma. It's the most exciting, absolutely. I just get a kick out of it. These guys are broken guys, but they're, They're believers. The basis of these type of friendships, these type of relationships, is what? What is the basis? It's Christ, right? It's not hobbies. It's not we're in the same season of life. It's not we have a common occupational industry. It's not we we got common political views. It's being drawn to love people because of Jesus. Okay, we got we got to get going here. So what happens? He separates them, sheep from the goats. And he says to those on his right, by the way, if you want to do something fun, just in your little notebook there, write what he says to the sheep and write what he says to the goats and, and write them parallel, okay? So, in other words, the first thing he says to the, to the sheep is come. The first thing he says to the goats is depart. Isn't that interesting? And it goes that way all the way down, okay? So he says to the sheep, he says, come. I, I, I will never cease to be blown away that God wants me to be nearer to him. Isn't that awesome? Like, I, I'm, a, I'm a dirty, filthy sinner. I'm a broken guy that keeps messing up. And the God of this universe, the holy, righteous God of this universe, he wants to bring me close. He put me in his son. And now and now in the last judgment, as if that's not good enough, he's saying, come. Come, come to me. Blessed, he says. To the, to the ones on the right, he says, blessed. To the ones on the left, he says, Cursed. Blessed means fortunate, happy, joyful, satisfied. He says to the ones on the right, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. In other words, there's an inheritance for you. First Peter says it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. Verse 46 says come into eternal life. But to those on his left, and we're going to linger here just a little bit. We're going to linger here, why? So I can sleep good tonight, Okay. That's why, that's why we're gonna linger because you need to hear this and I need to hear this and we need to make sure we understand this, okay? Jesus, this whole section of scripture has been culminating in you need to be ready, okay? So you need to know this piece in order to be ready because Jesus told it to us, right? He says to those on his left, and I want you to notice, true to the rest of Matthew, they are shocked. Do you notice that? They're shocked they're on the left. When, When he says, hey, I was hungry and you didn't give me anything to eat. I was was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not welcome me. I was a prisoner. You did not come to me. You didn't visit me when I was sick. And what do they say? When? 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 When did that happen? If you go to Matthew 7, Jesus says, on that day, what are people going to say? They're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't didn't we do this in your name and this and this and this and this and this? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. These guys on the left, they think they're in or not. He says, depart. He says, be cast away from all that is good, from everything that's pleasing. He says, you're cursed. You're cursed to hell. Ponder with me for just a few minutes what hell is. Number one, it's separation. That's obvious here, right? He says, depart from me. Right, from all that is good, from all that is God. You see, really, hell is just basically giving people what they wanted. If you didn't want God, if you said, I'm not interested in you, God. Like, yeah, I'll hear this preaching. I'll go sit down for a while. But I, I'm not interested in you. I'm not excited about you. I don't believe this stuff about you. I don't believe that you're the best thing. I don't believe that I can trust you. I don't believe that your word is right. I don't believe that stuff. I'm, I'm really not interested in you. Hell is a place where God says, okay. Depart from me. It's a place of separation. It's a place of association with the devil and his angels. Do you you notice in verse 41, it says, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Your your permanent residence will be with the devil and the demons. What will that be like? I don't know. I, I, I don't know, but here's what I know. John eight forty four tells me that the devil is a murderer and a liar. 1 Peter 5, 8 says he's a roaring lion seeking to devour. The Bible tells us that demons are killers. Do you see what the demons do to people in the New Testament? We have an abundance of evidence of the, of the demoniac and of demon-possessed people and we see that they're killers. The worst of atrocities of mankind, the most vile and wicked things that we know on this earth are demonically incited. Rape and murder and torture and molestation and rage and idolatry. Those are the character and the activity of the demonic. The demon Will, will be the companions of people in hell. I've, I've had people tell me, and I just, I've had them tell me, I'm I'm not afraid to go to hell because all my friends will be there. People are serious. John Piper, I was listening to Ask Pastor John yesterday morning, I was washing the dishes, and I was, I was listening to him, and he just got back from South America, and he told a story about being in Carnival, you know, the big big riotous party Carnival. And he said there was this woman that had hardly any clothes on. She was scantily clad, and she, had, she was wearing devil horns, and she had a sign around her neck that said, still think you don't want to go to hell. In other words, hey, I'll be here. You still think you don't want to go to hell? I'll be there. You still think you don't want to go to hell? And when he said that, I immediately thought of of Luke 16. Like there's one place in the scriptures that we have somebody from hell speak back to us. And if you remember what that guy asked for, the first thing he asked is that Lazarus would be allowed to come with a drop of water to soothe his agony. So the first thing he asks for, he knows he can't leave. That's that's astonishing to me that he already knows I will never leave. So what he asked for is a moment of relief. And when that is denied him, the second thing he asks for, you remember it? Send him to tell my brothers. Tell them what? Don't come here. Don't come Hell is torment. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I get so frustrated. I've had people tell me before, well, it can't be a literal fire because fire can't burn forever. Even the sun will burn out. And if it was prepared for the devil and his angels, then they're disembodied spirits. And so obviously real fire wouldn't hurt them. So it can't be real fire. It's so frustrating to me. Because Jesus, the one who rose from the dead, the guy that's offering you glory, the guy that with his own life paid the price for your sins, is pleading with you to come. And there's people that are trying to make hell better than it is. And you're, you're missing the point. What is, what is this point here? If I spill a, a, a jug of acid all over my leg and I'm writhing in agony and you say, what's wrong? And I say, my leg is burning. It's on fire. And you look down at it and you say, no, it's not. There's no flames there. It's not on fire. Acid must be fine. Well, that's exactly what people do with passages like this. What, what, is, what is Jesus telling us? He's saying, stay away. The one who rose from the dead. What's he saying in passages like Mark 9, 47, 48, where he says, hell is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched? Again, I've, I've had people, it's frustrating conversations. I've had people say, Huh, you know, the worm is obviously a parasite. They say, well, a parasite couldn't it couldn't survive, you know, the fire. I'm like, man, you're missing the point. What is Jesus clearly communicating? It's eternal. Like it, the worm does not ever die. What What is he saying? He's saying hell is a place of conscious torment that is forever. I'll just be honest with you. Forever is one of those concepts that I struggle to get my head around. I, I struggle to, I, I just, when I try to think about what would what is forever like, when I think about what would it mean where there's, nothing will ever be different. Everything will always be like this. There will be no second chances. There will be no relief. There will be no moment of respite. There will be no tapping out. There will be no putting your shoulders down. There will be no quitting. There will be no apologies. There will be no, I was wrong. There will be no morphine. There will be no Oxycontin. There will be no alcohol. There will be no meth. There will be nothing, nothing to ever dull the pain. And that that would last Forever. Nothing would ever change. Nothing would ever be different. It would be forever. Surely we get the point here. The one who rose from the dead is saying, this is eternally horrible. And God has made a way that you don't have to go. Do you see that? God, God has made a way through the death of his own son for you not to go there. God has made a way for you to go to glory. God has made a way. He's paid the price. He's accomplished it for you. But you must believe. You must believe that he can be trusted, that he's the best thing, following Jesus' life. And your life needs to demonstrate that. Listen, I'll just be honest. It does not matter what I say about myself. It really doesn't matter what you say about yourself. Because Jesus is going to stretch out our life. And he's going to say, Was the love of God in you? If it was, then it was, it would have come out of you. And it would have looked like this. And all of chapter 24 and all of chapter 25, one simple message. Be ready. Be ready. Ready, be ready. Like what what a gift today, huh? What a gift today. We have opportunity today. You have opportunity to repent. You have opportunity to believe. You have opportunity to trust. You have opportunity to seek. You have opportunity to live out the gospel. You have opportunity today. Grab onto it today, would you? Let's pray. Father, please help us, God, to respond in faith and obedience to what we just heard from Matthew 25. God, I'm asking you to, to move in the hearts of people. God, I'm asking you to draw men and women and children to yourself. God, I'm so thankful for the five folks I just saw get baptized at Kansas Avenue. God, I'm thankful for five people that, that publicly profess that, that they... The old them is dead, and the new them is raised. God, I'm I'm thankful for that. God, I I pray for more. God, I pray that you would send a sweeping movement of your spirit, God, that we we would live out our faith in visible ways. God, please help us. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand, please? Let's sing together.